Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Meta won't algorithmically share political content with you in threads from accounts you don't already follow. The question is, do we trust Meta to determine what content is and is not political? Scores, a new dating app, conceived at last year's Afrotech, and it requires you to have a credit score of 675 or better in order to find a match. OpenAI CEO Sam Altman seeks a measly $7 trillion for a new AI chip project. And HBCUs could benefit from the CHIPS Act if the federal government adheres to its Section 104 provisions. We got all this and more for you on episode 117 of the Tech John from Columbus, Ohio. I'm your host, Rob Dunwood. And coming out of Philly, it's your girl, Tech Life Steph. And out of Atlanta, this is Terrence Gaines, aka Brother Tech, aka Love is in the Air. Uh, happy Valentine's Week for all those folks out there who choose to celebrate. Let me take a note right now. You're already late in the game. Thank you for reminding. No, I'm just being facetious. Oh, I was about uh, to say. <laughs> no, I have calendar invite, calendar updates that notify me starting about two, three weeks out. Hey, Valentine's Day is coming up. Anyway, what's going on, y'all? Nothing much, nothing much, nothing at all. Just got a lot of stuff going on. But other than that, ready to get into some tech news. Mm-hmm. Um, let's dive into it. We will uh, probably talk about the uh, Super Bowl just a little bit in our after party. But let's go ahead and jump into these tech stories because we got a few of them. We want to get through them today. So the first one, um, Terrence, this one is yours. Uh, do, do we do we trust Meta to keep our feeds politically free? That's how you title it. But uh, this is stemming from something that came out last week where Meta basically said that with threads, they are not going to promote any political uh, content unless you already follow the the account that is posting the political content. And at first, that seems like, OK, that's pretty cool. Then you want to keep all this trash that sometimes political content can be out of people's feeds. But then the uh, question gets asked is like, well, who determines what the political content is? And what's political? So it, it can be all kind of problematic. So I wanted to get you guys' take on just what, what do you think about what Meta is ultimately doing as far as threads is concerned? And is it good for them to actually say what is political and what is not political? So basically what they were doing prior to this announcement was, according to this blog post in from Meta, they said we've shifted away from ranking political content in Facebook feed based on engagement signals such as how likely you are to comment on or share content since we found that they are not reliable indicators that the content is valuable to someone. So that automatically raises my eyebrows like, so y'all was ranking content? What kind (laughs) of content was you ranking? Was it 
Was it um, completely, uh, you know, anything that's completely untruth or is it just Democrats versus Republicans or independent versus conservative versus liberal? It's like, okay, you're saying you are moving away from ranking the content. Well, what did, what was y'all doing before? Yeah. Is my question to where the stuff got so crazy. Terry is like, well, maybe this ain't no, this is not a good idea. And then like Rob said, going forward. Okay. So you're going to stop prioritizing or ranking or whatever you were doing, you know, so that goes to, all right, so what are y'all doing now? And then how y'all going to assume that this new way that you're doing political content is any different than what it was before. Number two, who's all going to do all this new uh, ranking or however you're going to do it, or are you just going to let it flow? And then whatever happens, happens. All those situations spell trouble. But I guess the question is what side of trouble does Meta want to be on? (laughs) Yeah, I don't, I don't think Meta needs to be in the, in this business, basically. I mean, obviously it's, it's, these are their platforms. They need to take the responsibility of, of doing um, some sort of content moderation. But, you know, once you start a- asking these questions, like content moderation is one thing, but determining, you know, the degree of politicalness of a post is something else entirely. You know what I mean? You're, you're, you're speaking now to trying to interpret intent in a post, which you're just, you know, you're, you're horrible at, you know what I mean? You, you, you're horrible at getting the, the stuff that's obviously pornographic or obviously violent or obviously whatever, you can't even Mm -hmm. get that off your platform. So now you're going to get into this sort of nuanced, uh, detail. Yeah. Of, of what exactly is a political and, and the only way you can do it right now is by looking for keywords, which just completely, you know, tosses the baby out with the bathwater in most cases. So I, you know, I, I don't, this is not going to go well for, for them, for us who want to see political, who may want to see political content and want to be able to discover political content. Cause that's what it's going to do. It's going to take it out of the recommendations, um, area. So you won't be able to actually, you know, discover randomly this sort of content. And I mean, maybe I want to, like, how are you, just keeping me from the content that I may want to see. It, it just, mm-hmm. it, it just is not going to go well. This is not going to go well. I have a, I have, I have several thoughts on this. So the, the first thing, and I actually wrote this, uh, you know, who, who's to say, you know, who's making these rules? Well, Meta is, and to be fair to them, they are doing the exact same thing with Instagram and the exact same thing with Facebook. So this isn't any different for threads or just now adding this thing to threads, but uh, Meta has said that, you know, from the beginning of threads, they do not want it to be, uh, you know, the place where politics is discussed. This is, that's not what they're looking for. That causes them problems on the back end. So if they could get rid of all political speak, I don't think they really have a problem with it. But here's the question though. What is political speech? It's like you, you, you get into, you, you get, you have to now start defining these things. What is political content? Because some folks might say, uh, you know, I would really like it if my children could read books that featured authors who look like them. That could be a very political statement. 
depending on what state you live in. Right. Um, pretty much all 50 of them. Um, but yeah, that, that's a very political statement. So you could literally be just having conversations with your people about, man, they're out here banning all these books. And I would just like, you know, where can I send my child to go read some stuff, you know, written by people about them or about experiences that would, you know, reflect them. Not necessarily a political statement, but who's going to determine if that's a political yeah, statement and there, there's no way to, to do this in a way that's going to be fair and and equitable and 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 it, it it's it's tap dancing on the violation of free speech line just a little bit i mean the fact that they're not necessarily banning this content but they're doing everything they can to suppress it from people who could potentially see it is 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 right up there on the line of of you know banning free speech you know for for all intents and purposes uh for as many people that won't get to see it so i i just 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 it just reeks of failure <laughs> to me because there's just no way they can do this in a way that's going to make sense for you know everybody the majority of people yeah which is so. the problem um ultimately which is the problem with user generated content. And I've said it before and I'll say it again until these social media platforms, either a start charging people to use them or um, figure out how to generate their own content that the masses then consume. There's no way they're going to be able to control the content because it's from the users. Facebook, if you add meta, I mean, if you add Instagram, if you have threads, if you add all the platforms, Billions of people utilize these platforms. So how on earth are y'all going to be able to um, take all this content in and then try to massage it to where the majority of people say, that's okay. I'm okay with that. You can't. There's no possible way you can. So all these ways you're trying to do it is either A, going to be okay with some people and then piss everybody else off. Or, you know, there's some combination of that to where they're trying to either fix or just trying to tell us that they're fixing. And they really ain't trying to do nothing because ultimately they can't because it's our content. And that's you're always going to run into that trouble or that issue. So here's a question. We we respect Meta more if they just flat out came out and said, look, we don't want political content on our platform. It doesn't benefit us. We're not profiting off of it the way that we would like to. So we're just going to eliminate it in the best way that we can. I mean, if they said that, would you would we feel better about it? Or is it the fact that they're, oh, well, we're going to ban this. You know, we're going to call it political content. But like like when I really think about this, it's going to be things that are not really political content. It's just that somebody felt that it was because of who said it or the way that they said it. And you get into that gray area. It's too subjective. That's the thing. And, 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 you know, even if you were like, we banning it, banning it, how banning it for like, I I look at, you know, Sean King, um, he's been, he's gotten a lifetime ban on Instagram. He's no longer on Instagram. And, you know, from what I understand of the, his content that I've engaged with, none of it should have violated their terms of service. I mean, cause he wasn't specifically put like, I, I don't know. There could have been a post that was calling for violence or whatever violates their terms, but all he tended to do in the content that I've seen him do was amplify what was already happening and, and give voice to people who you may not have heard on, you know, because their own 
following was small or whatever. Like I haven't heard any necessary, any, any misinformation necessarily. So it would be, I would be really interested in why, you know, something, you know, someone like him with such a large following would have been banned. And, 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 it, and again, it goes back to what are you calling political Who's to say what's political and what's not political? I mean, obviously he's an activist, so all of his content is political. But in what way right. is that political content violating it, any right. kind of policy? You know what I right. mean? Because it didn't it didn't appear so, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But again, everybody' opinions are like assholes. You know what I mean? Everybody got one, and so somebody else might have looked at what he was posting and been like, "Oh, this is anti whatever, and this is too pro whatever." But you just it's just too again, subjective to, for, for one body, um, to make that call, especially, uh, a corporation, you know, who's in the business of, of capitalism and views and everything else. Like you just, y'all, y'all are tainted. Y'all's opinion of what this is, is, is not objective enough to, to make that call. Yep. And it, the whole, the whole point of social media is to give people a voice. Then how are you going to turn around and take it? Because you and just don't it. like, <laughs> you don't like, or somebody else reported right. that they don't like what the person said. Now I get content that is violent content that promotes violence content that promotes any, it puts anybody in danger, you know, or just flat out misinformation, right? That though, that's clear. That stuff should be out of there regardless of what it is, whether I agree with it or not. If I follow somebody and I happen to agree with what they say, but it just so happens to be what well, that was a, a non-factual or, you know, somebody has been hurt as a result of it. I'm like, hey, you got to respect the game, but you can't really say that because, again, these social media platforms are all over the place based on how the wind blows, based on if somebody's looking at them for some strange reason. You know, they're just making these things up on the fly, which is never going to work, because, like I said, these are people's voices. This is a free. These are free platforms where people can share their voice. So for you to try to police that, good luck. And especially considering <laughs> yeah, yeah. that nowhere in the announcement did they say we're hiring X number more, you know, people to look at or, moderators, mm-hmm. or we've we've partnered with this journalism project to vet this content and 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 come up with these guidelines on what determines politics or not. You know, like they haven't. They're not. You're not doing the work. You're just you're just doing a lot of lip service to this issue without doing the actual work of trying to solve it in a way that makes sense for people. Yeah, I think what they're doing is they're solving it the same way they solved it for Facebook and Instagram. But the reason that people seem to be a bit more up in arms about it is because um, threads, regardless of what Facebook wants it to be, a lot of people are looking at it as a replacement for Twitter. Yep. And this is where that conversation thrived on Twitter. Uh, and, you know, you know, um, you know, and, and now on X, it's still happening there on X. And I think that people are saying it's like, oh, oh well, I, where do I go for my news? Where do, where do I go to hear this person? Where do I go to hear that person? Right. Or I guess in, in this case, and, and, you know, just, and just uh, clear, Adam Mosseri is like, not here. Don't bring, yeah. don't bring so, that don't bring that ish over here. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so to be clear, if you follow someone, if you follow an account that is putting out political information, you can then see. The political information, but you have to follow the account. What's not going to happen is you're not algorithmically going to see things. You're, you know, what, what Meta is not going to do is see that you've been talking about, uh, 
a particular topic and then say, oh, well, you might be interested in these other other topics because if you've been Which talking about politics, against the entire structure of how these social networks were created in the first place, the whole point is to be a recommendation engine. And now mm-hmm. you're going to reverse that and flip we'll flip it and reverse it basically and and not do that so like where they do that at going against your whole business model yeah this is a this is an interesting one because you know i I don't have a a a dog in the hunt uh you know so to speak it's like I, i i don't really spend enormous amounts of time looking at political content on these platforms but hundreds of millions of people do yeah and so it's kind of like I understand from the company standpoint, it's like this does us no good as a business to have this on our platform. Um, I get that. But you also can't say, but we also want to be the platform where everybody comes to have conversation except for these ones that we don't like. That right. is that is a uh, it, it is an area. Uh, you know, I don't want to call it a gray area or whatever area, but it is an area that is difficult to deal with. So I do understand why Meta would be doing these things. But I think on a platform like 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 uh, Threads, which is a, you know, although Adam Mosseri will not say that it was a clone of Twitter, it was there's a lot of Twitter like features that right. are in uh, that are in threads and, and there's a lot the, of features that people would like to be in threads that are still in X, but are not over here right now. So it's, it's one of those things to where I, I, I get where they're coming from. It's just going to be interesting to see how this works out and who knows, maybe, maybe blue sky. Um, you know, I know that I didn't put this in the rundown, but blue sky removed Look, their, you, you can't um, their sign up. You they cannot five million folks. Now Facebook meta is trying to police people's content and play both sides of the fence and while they're doing it and you're you not, can't do it you're not going to be able to tell people what they can and can't do on a free site as much as they want to try as much as they want to moderate as much as they want to police again and and i'm saying this because people are people if we can't do it on meta or instagram or facebook or twitter we're going to go to threads. If we can't do it on threads, we're going to go to blue sky. If we can't do it on blue sky, we're going to go to Mastodon. You can't do it on Mastodon and so on and so on and so forth. So I think this is not a problem, not particularly a problem for social media to fix. You know, we can try, they can try to do those things. Like I mentioned, as long as it, nobody's being directly hurt on the back of this, then that's an issue. As long as somebody's not promoting violence, that's an issue that I mean, that's just a moral issue that we've all tried to work with. But social media ain't no better than the police or ain't no better than the government social media is no better than humans. Exactly. Right. So, like It is what it is. <laughs> right. And it, it allows you to find the worst of humanity with the speed of computers, mm-hmm. because here's the thing. People in public, like when you just when you when you're out at the mall, although we will see folks acting stone cold fool at the mall, that's not the regular thing for folks at the mall. But when you're on social media, it's like 20 percent of folks is just out outrageous with the stuff they say, because it's not a picture of them. It's an avatar. You don't in this it's synonymous. You don't know who they are. So I'm not I'm not saying that everybody needs to be, uh, you know, tracked to, to, to that level. But I do I do understand that when it when it comes to social media, you're going to get you're going to see the worst of humanity exposed quickly just because it doesn't cost him anything to all right yo so this next story uh steph this one is yours because i don't think that terrence or i either one of us would have would have come up with this one because we are both very very happily happily married 
But I'm looking at this story about, uh, you know, about this new platform, about this new dating site that uh, I'm just I'm, I'm glad I ain't in the game anymore. So so why don't you tell us a little bit about why you might need to have good credit? To get a date or score. I'm just, I, I, and I'm not really mad at it, honestly. But yeah. it, at, in, in further, upon further review, um, it, it has become obvious to me that this is, you know, really more so a marketing. Uh, I don't want to say ploy because, you know, some people could meet and, and, and hook up and get married and live happily ever after with, with bomb ass credit scores based off this app. However, again, just based off of, you know, more further research into the story, um, this does look like just a, a very, very good marketing effort on the part of this company. So, um, there is a company, a fintech company called Neon Money Club, which by the way, no, it has sounds a, suspect. well, <laughs> Neon it, it, Money it has, Club. Has a black CEO. They, I mean, they, they're doing big things. They just raised, I think, 10 million, um, in like a series A recently. Um, so they, it's a legitimate company. It's, it's yeah, actually, a it, it's actually, they just raised more than they raised $10 million, uh, so far, uh, since the company started. But, um, uh, basically what the, the app is doing is a, it's a financial platform that wants to raise awareness and, and help people with different sorts of financial technical products, but they launched a app called score, which is a dating app that you have to have a a minimum credit score to be on. I believe the minimum credit score is 675. Um, and the whole point of the app is that we need to take that. And this is with, uh, Luke Bailey is the CEO of neon money club. He was quoted in TechCrunch as saying, we need to take the conversation to areas where finance isn't traditionally discussed. Uh, before you can educate people, you need to get their attention with score. We're bringing this conversation to dating because, you know, it sometimes can be an uncomfortable conversation for people to have. Um, you don't want to be on the first date talking about, you know, what's your credit score. However, you do want to, um, I mean, I know, I know, I personally would want to connect with somebody that I knew had some level of financial literacy about them and, and cared about where their finances were. And, and this is kind of a way, I think, to, to bridge that gap. The app is only going to be live for like 90 days from what, um, the uh, article was saying the app will be available for a limited time. Prospective users must apply to get access. I went on the site. I didn't want to, Entered that, that much of my personal information. Well, it said that the checking, they only want the last four digits of your social, they, you know, they, your name, address, last four digits of your social. They are saying that the check will not impact your credit score, them, you know, doing the inquiry. They're doing like a soft inquiry and it won't mm-hmm. impact your credit score. And they're not necessarily trying to match you based on exact credit score. So like, you know, 800 to 800 or whatever, as long as you have a minimum score, you qualify to be on the app and then y'all can kind of take it from there. But I was like, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a very novel idea. Um, and listen, I, I'm not super, super mad at it, although I, I'm aware that, you know, sometimes communities of color, you know, do fall on not the, I don't want to say the lower end of the credit spectrum, but for reasons that have to do with institutional racism, sometimes fall below, um, you know, what white 
what their white counterparts end up at. So I think you do maybe lose a few people, you know, on that because, you know, they did in the article, it did say he was asked about whether or not this was classist to have something like this um, that could potentially exclude people from from finding true love. Um, but I mean, I, 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 I'm not getting on it. I'll put it, I'll say all this to say I would not get on an app like this, but I'm also not necessarily mad at it. Because I see what what they're trying to do. What say you? Go here, go here, Rob. <laughs> so um, my initial thought on this was like, seriously, this is what y'all doing now. This is this is what the you know the dating world has come to. But then I thought I actually have a friend who's now engaged, uh, who uh, has actually used the services of a uh, executive matchmaker, and. It was a heck of a lot more than a credit check that they ran on her and then ran on the guy that she's now engaged to. Um, it was a full, you know, uh, it, it, it was, it was a full check. They, it was almost like an FBI level check. They wanted to make, you know, they wanted to know everything. Um, you know, where you work, work history. Did you have any, you know, felonies, you know, all this kind of stuff, uh, you know, things that you wouldn't necessarily talk about in your first couple of dates. And I remember having this conversation with her. She said, you know, why would she do that? It's just like, well, you know, I'm in my, um, you know, I'm in my, at the time she was in her late thirties and she's, I think she's just now like 40 or 41 and they're about to get married. But she's like, I don't have a lot of time. It's like, you know, I would still, I would like to meet someone. And if I can eliminate three months of the finding out who you are to, you know, to, to where I can trust you. Cause it's like, you know, three months, that's just 12 days, but that's still three months. It's like, do, do I got to go out with you 12, 15 times before I figure out that you can't hold a job before I figure that's out that crazy you, and you, yeah, you, you know, your house is not actually your house. It's your mama's house. Um, and you just happen to live there with her. Um, you know, and you, you position it as it was your house and she's living there with you. These kind of things I want to know up front because I just don't have time to, to deal with that. So when I, when I, when I, when I thought about that conversation and I have, you know, uh, you know, with, with, with my friend, I was like, okay, yeah, I, I, I can see this because I, like I said, I have not been in the dating pool for a long, long, long time. But if I was right now, I'm thinking, yeah, I kind of want to know, do you work? <laughs> do you, you know, do you, you know, do you have priors? Do you, you know, these are the kind of things that, that I would want to, you know, get to know. And although I'm, I'm no longer looking to have any children or anything like that, it's just like, you know, you may not have a lot of time to deal with that three to six months, just getting to know somebody before you decide whether or not you want to be in a, you know, in, in a relationship or something. So that's just my thought. I, I can see it. I can understand it. It sounds like this app to me is in response to a lot of the conversations that I have seen, heard, or just witnessed online to where money is becoming a big deal up front. I'm not saying it always was, it wasn't a big deal up front, but it seems like more so now, you know, people are starting to be. Um, more open about what they expect financially from a partner, from a potential partner, right? We've heard about the $200 dates and we've heard about where you can't, can and can't, where a man can and can't take a woman can't on the first date. Can't go to the date. Cheesecake Factory. <laughs> you know, um, 
woman, you know, they had the whole thing about, you know, would you date a dude who drives a bus? You know, all these things kind of go around finances, right? So it sounds like, and again, I could be totally wrong, but it sounds like an app like this is in response to those kind of conversations that we're starting to have online as it evolves or evolves or revolves around money. My only concern with this is number one, I'm not sure if credit score is the right metric for you to kind of gauge how somebody is in a relationship as a whole. I know it's just a groundbreaker. I know it's just like a, uh, 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 a jumping off point. And then you're supposed to find out if that person's a good person, you know, outside of just them being good with money. Right. I get that. But at the same time, it's like something like this almost once you get in, you, I, I can see people assuming that, oh, you know, well, this person, I don't know how they show the credit. I don't know if they even show credit scores at all. As when you're they don't, somebody. they don't show each other. Okay. The, they mm. don't show the scores to people. You just know that if they you have got reached this threshold. It, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. you have yeah, at they've, least they've gotten to the threshold of good score. credit. I think right. six seventy five right. is where good credit starts. So. Right, right. So I guess my question, my I guess my concern is to, and it had to be to, to the people who are actually using the app. You know how much better or not is your potentials based off of this number, right? That could or could not be used. I've seen in many cases, people with excellent credit scores, terrible people, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, I, I would hope, I would hope, I guess ultimately what I'm getting at is I hope that somebody who would use this as a, as a way to find a potential mate doesn't let their guard down because they perceived that this person is more compatible based off of this credit score thing that revolves around finances, which I get. But it's a a good way to weed folk out that aren't as responsible as you might be with your Mm -hmm. finances. And if we can sort of start, you know, in a place where you're somewhat equally yoked, um, you know, because when you, and, and, like, and like you said, and like to Rob's point, y'all ain't out here on these app streets. Y'all do not see what I see in these <laughs> app streets. So it's like, if you can at least start so, at a place where you're somewhat equally yoked, and if that means financially, um, because you both have some sense of financial responsibility, at least we are starting at a place. And yes, to your, I agree with you, Terrence, that yes, you gotta, you still gotta do the work of getting to know this person for real, for real. But if we can at least start at a point where we are equally yoked in our financial understanding and literacy and goals and, and things like that, and then we can move forward from there. I mean, that's just one less thing you gotta, you know, hope not to find out about you know right. once you all in and you realize that this this person you know got 12 years of child support on the back and you know and all this other stuff so it's just you know one one little way to weed out so Steph you said at the very beginning that you did not want to call this a marketing ploy by the, the neon the, the, the neon money club but it is i'm not gonna make you do it i'll go ahead and do it because it's a 90 <laughs> it's a 90 day trial 
And here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, that the you know, so one thing we didn't mention, this was actually, uh, you know, they, they thought this up last year at Afrotech in, in, in Austin. Yeah. So my gut is telling me that they did this because, OK, you know what? Folks are saying this is what they want. We, we got all these coders here. Let's figure out. Can we put something together to ultimately mm-hmm. get more people into the Neon Money Club? Yeah, because well, can, says, we, can it, we allow it, it, people meet each other in the neon money club because th- th- that is you know an area where they have you know uh things that they have in common that they're interested in and if we can you know maybe get things moving a little bit quicker by making sure everybody got a good credit score then, then let's do it i don't want I, I don't know that that's what it is but that's kind of what no, it seems it, like it is, it is. i'm gonna I'm read something to you let me read something to you real quick it says those denied access to score will be sent to resources to improve their financial literacy and to credit builder grow credit to help them boost their credit scores. Afterwards, those people are sent back to us to qualify for our products. This is what Luke Bailey mm-hmm. said about the thing. So it is obviously a, a ploy and, and they have a, there's a Spotify playlist that is connected to the app with slow jams and, and all kind of stuff. Um, and then this, this company, uh, neon money club actually has, has a other uh, real products. Yeah. <laughs> the real they have product. a card. They have, they have a, um, collaboration with American express and they mm-hmm. have a cream card. And I was like, when I saw a cream, I was like, these better be black people and not just white people trying to capital off, capitalize off a of Wu-Tang. Um, but they have an actual card who, mm-hmm. with that real is a cream in color that, you know, is, is a, and is, is an Amex card that they, you know, are pushing as well. So it definitely is, you know, it, it's great marketing. They got some press around it just in time for Valentine's day, but I thought it was just an interesting experiment in, you you know, how people could uh, connect in this day and yeah. age. So, so like I said, th- th- this is just me now. I- I'm making up my whole dialogue in my head. You had, Af- you know, you're, you're at Afrotech. It's like you're having these conversations, probably at a place where there are sudsy, you know, sudsy beverages that are sold to people only mm-hmm. 21 or older. And it's like, man, it's like we should build an app. And this is what they this is what they brainstorm. And, and had a hackathon. As they kept that thinking about, I was like, you know what? This, this might actually work. So I, I'm interested just to go back and see where this is after this 90 day, uh, 90 day trial mm-hmm. runs, because you can't, you, you cannot convince me that if it's not successful, they won't do more of it because ultimately I, I think this is, this is to get folks into the back end. And there could be some, some good on this. It's like, I mean, th- th- there are financial advisors who will tell you, it's like, you shouldn't be dating right now. You, you you shouldn't be. You should be working on getting your finances. Susie uh, Orman together. would tell you that uh, real quick. Um, <laughs> like, it's like you know you you, you can't afford. Stay your butt at home. <laughs> you know you can't afford to be married. You can't afford to do this. And um, you know you you have two hundred fifty thousand dollars in uh in, in credit card debt. You shouldn't be worried about how to get the house right now. You should be you know you know and, and you know and starting a family right now. You should be worried about how to get out from under all that debt. I'm not saying that that's for everybody, but mm-hmm. I do know that that is some of the conversation that is out there around finances. So yeah, this is, 
like I said, you didn't want to say it. I will say it. This is this is marketing to get you into the Neon Money Club. Uh, I'm, I'm going to agree with Charles, it. though. That name is horrible. <laughs> that name yeah. does seem like a pyramid scheme. Neon Money Club. Um, but when I so many of these types of clubs like this have names like that. But, uh, but yeah, that that does give me a little bit of pause when I just hear the name of it. But looking on the back end of it, it's like, no, this is a legitimate company with actual investors and they they have real financial products. So it'll be real interesting to see where this goes. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So so speaking of money, um, did your boy Sam Altman... Did did your boy Sam Altman just ask for seven trillion dollars trillion with a t he did with a t so uh you know steph this is another one of your stories but basically uh ceo of open ai he basically has come out and said that in order to do the work that we want to do at open ai we need significantly more world capacity in semiconductors and he believes that seven trillion dollars ought to be is, is the number to do it. So I'll, I'll let you get into the story. But he, I just want folks to understand how much seven trillion dollars is. There are exactly two countries that could pay for this in a year. They are called the United States and China. That is it. No one else has a GDP of seven trillion dollars. Um, in fact, there's only 19 countries that have a GDP of over one trillion. Um, and then, of course, if you put the European, um, you know, European Union together, theirs is quite large as well. But it's like two countries could actually pay for this by themselves. So I'm just like, you want seven trillion dollars? No, it's crazy. World? And I only threw I only threw it in there because our main story was about semiconductors and, and what art, yeah. what the United States is doing um, around it. And it just, it, you know, the 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 audacity. But the the crazy part is. I feel like he'll probably get it. I mean, he's not going to get it all in one shot, um, but he's getting in bed with uh, folks over in the United Arab Emirates uh, as his sort of primary, you know, ask. Um, Mm -hmm. And I I feel like I feel like he might get it. I mean, if our country doesn't block that investment, because um, I have been hearing, you know, listen to some podcasts and hear some news that, you know, the United States may not allow this sort of investment to happen because it would be coming from the UAE and, and other Arab countries. But um, 
if 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 they if our country allows it, I feel like he'll get it, which is insane because I feel like you know he was an evil genius that created this whole thing to do exactly what he's doing now, which is you know commercializing and militarizing artificial intelligence um, to to become general artificial intelligence, and and this is would just get us all one step closer, you know to the Skynet we keep joking about, but with this type of investment, like it, 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 that becomes a reality sooner rather than later. It just sounds like the stuff that the people <laughs> who tried to get him out the game the first time was we're trying to about. avoid. Exactly. That's exactly <laughs> what they were trying to avoid. Exactly mm-hmm. what they were trying to avoid. That's like, this here he comes. Let's go ahead and try to genius. nip this in the bud. Yeah, try to nip it in the bud. But again, you know, uh, uh, money talks. So he was back in the seat and now this is rules the next, everything around me. This is the next move. But I mean, I guess there uh, there's a case to where, you know, AI is limited by our manufacturing and producing as it relates to energy, as it relates to all those things that goes into creating chips. So, I mean, I guess that is a good argument to have um, again, a, a, a good argument to have in order to justify getting that much money. Now, whether or not AI is that important that there needs to be a whole, a whole overhaul in chip, you know, however, they, you know, semi, the global semiconductor industry is AI enough to do that? That remains the question. But I mean, I somebody's got to ask. I think it is. <laughs> I think it is. Like I said, if, if, if our government allows it, I think he's going to get at least close like no i mean i i don't know that he'll get five to seven trillion like he's asking for but i think he will maybe be the first person to get a trillion dollar investment and now we got to come up with a new name because unicorns were the billion dollar valuations you know we'll have to come up with a new name for his company but um to describe it but i i think he'll, I think he'll get it yeah, right <laughs> yeah, and, and i think be, he'll just, get a trillion dollars and, and to be a little bit more clear so Although I don't think he would turn down $7 trillion if somebody wanted to offer that to him and his company. That's not exactly what he was asking for. He believes that there needs to be $7 trillion in investments into the industry of building right. semiconductors. So right. all of that, you know, combined. So it's not just one place. He's not talking about, yeah, let's just go build, a, a, you know, let's go build a giant super foundry in the UAE. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying that we need to have foundries all over earth that are doing this. We need to have people trained all over earth that are doing this ultimately so that we can actually do the work that we want to do to make uh, Skynet actually possible. And, and guess um, who, and guess who, guess who's already on the ground floor of that Sam Altman. Let me read this passage in 2018 Altman, personally invested in an AI chip startup called Rain Neuromorphics based near OpenAI San Francisco headquarters. And in 2019, just a year later, OpenAI signed a letter of intent to spend $51 million on guess whose chips? Range chips. In December, the U.S. compelled a Saudi uh, Aramco-backed venture capital firm to sell its shares in range. So dude is like, he's like, let me get on the ground floor and do a startup that creates He's been, he's been playing chess. Yeah. He's been playing chess for this whole time. So if we don't see this coming, he's been playing chess, not checkers. We, we all, <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Um, so, yep. and the thing is, seven yep. seven trillion dollars that that is an astronomical number that no no one can imagine how much money that is. But I mean, what is it? You know, it takes a thousand million to be a billion. It takes a thousand billion to be a trillion. He wants so he wants uh, he wants seven of them. That's that is that is just enormous amounts of money. As I said, the only countries on Earth that have a GDP larger than that are the United States and China. Um, no one else has seven trillion, uh, you know, as an individual country. But the precedent so, is uh, the precedent is there with NVIDIA. NVIDIA has a market cap of one point seven two trillion dollars right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. you know, there really is no ceiling on and how this is going to go. And, and, and the, the, it's, it's the new gold rush, really. It, it really is a new gold rush. The semiconductor. I, I, I'm glad you mentioned um, NVIDIA just now, because he, here are the U S companies that have above a trillion dollar market cap. Apple. What does Apple make? Mm-hmm. Um, they're number one, Microsoft. What does Microsoft make? They're number two, uh, Amazon. What does Amazon do? Now, we, we a lot of us think of Amazon and get ordering stuff and coming to the house. That's not most of their businesses. It's AWS is where most of their right. business is coming from. Um, you know, Google. What does Google do? And then NVIDIA. They, they round out the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the top five, you know, as, as far as American companies that are actual trillion dollar market cap companies. And I believe that those five companies together are roughly 10.2 or 10.3 trillion dollars. So you have, you have to take the five biggest U.S. companies, put them together and you, st- you know, and you know, you still got three trillion left over, I guess, at the end. If you, I guess if they decide they don't want to pay people, they could probably, they could probably pull something like that off. So this is an enormous, enormous amount of money. But the U.S. government is not thinking that he's wrong. I don't know that they want to do it the way that Sam Altman is saying that they want to do it. But we, a couple of years ago, passed the acts. When I say we, I mean the, um, the, the Biden administration passed the CHIPS Act. Uh, a couple of years mm-hmm. ago. And that's, that's where we're going to, you know, head into our next story because, um, you know, the CHIPS Act, you know, just to give you a little bit of background on it, it was a, a program that got a lot of bipartisan support. And the reason was because we had this little thing called the global pandemic that happened. And during the global pandemic, supply chain shut down on earth. And we realized uh, right fast that we don't control the chips that we need. So basically we weren't able to get the trips that we needed when we needed them. So that kind of scared the country. And it's, it's sad that it takes, uh, you know, like global catastrophes like that to actually make the country think about things. But it's like, oh, no, we cannot be in a situation where we cannot get chips when we need to get chips. So they invested. I want to say, is it like two hundred and forty billion dollars? Or it's not, it's not just the government, it's government and, and, and companies, but it's, it's, that's a a quarter trillion. I mean, that's, that ain't, that ain't seven trillion, but that's just one country, you know, one country saying we're going to do this because what we want to do is bring, um, you know, chip making to our shores. So what is 248? I think it was 248. Okay. I think that was the number. Yeah. That's that, so that is that is still a awfully, awfully big number. But why do I bring this up? Because, uh, you know, the story is as far as how we're affected. HBCUs are gearing up 
for the global chip competition through a new partnership with the Biden administration. Now, I don't want to say that the Biden administration is is going to take money and just go fund HBCUs uh, directly. But last week, last Friday, actually, uh, the Biden administration announced five billion um, that is going to come from chip, Chips Act funds. So that two hundred and forty eight billion is going to go to semiconductor related research, development, and workforce needs, most of which is slated for the National Semiconductor Technology Center. And the NSTC is absolutely working with HBCUs to um, say, hey, you have an enormous amount of black engineers that come out of your school. We have already admitted in multiple ways that we have underfunded these HBCUs intentionally so in many cases to their detriment and to rectify that as part of the as part of the CHIPS Act, they had to go back and look at underserved communities. So that's something they have to do. So uh, so I started tying all this together. It's like, okay, well, why are they looking specifically at HBCUs? As well, um, about 10 percent of black graduates go to uh, HBCUs, but about over 50 percent, actually uh, most is w- what the article says, but over 50 percent of the ones who have the engineering degrees and the chops that they can actually go get these jobs working in foundries and building foundries and doing all this stuff that the CHIPS Act is trying to help us do. Half of them come from HBCUs. So it only makes sense that, well, wait a minute, if half the engineers that um that are black that are coming out of college that can actually do these jobs are coming from HBCUs when only 10% of them are graduating from those schools maybe we should look and see what those schools are doing special they're turning out such high caliber engineers they can go and do this work we can solve two problems with one you know maybe with one program we can actually go and look and say wait a minute if we put our money here something that we legally are entitled to do and have actually come out and said that we are not doing um maybe we can actually help this problem because the issue right now is that with all of these uh, you know investments like with Intel um, and TSMC and uh, you know some of the other country you know the other companies that are in active construction right now as far as building these foundries a couple of them have had to slow down because it's like well we don't have people who can come in and do the work we literally have the money to do what we need to do we don't have the people that are trained to be able to do the jobs in the places where we're building the foundries and this could go a long way to actually help with that. So that was a, that was a long setup. I don't, I don't want to make you guys have to read through all of that, but I kind of want to get your take on how do you think this might work uh, as far as uh, you know, HBCU specifically getting some of this money coming from the chips Act. Oh, go ahead, Steph. No, I, I read through the article and, and I also took a look at a little bit of the, um, a little bit of the actual act itself. And there were a couple things, you know, I, I, I always want to be optimistic that, you know, the system is altruistically Trump perpetuated throughout history and, and all that good stuff. But I can't help, but, but I can't help but wonder, uh, in my Carrie Bradshaw voice, um, and you know, how much of this is due to them not being able to get as many H1B visas, uh, here anymore. And, and now it's like, we can't, we can't import the talent. So now we got to scramble and, and let's kind of, I don't want to say throw crumbs because, you know, $5 billion is not crumbs, but over the larger scope of the the project, you know? Um, so I, I don't know. I, I, I want to just, you know, receive this news with the, with the spirit in which it was given, but, but the cynic in me just, just won't do that. Um, and then two, 
there, uh, it, it looks like there's a provision in the bill that prevents these companies from, um, offering lower cost semiconductors or products in general at their other global locations. Cause that was my whole thing. I'm like, okay, that's cool. Y'all building all these companies, you know, these, these facilities in the United States in order to build these semiconductors. But why, what's the incentive for companies to buy them from the companies in the United States? Because I have to believe that they're going to cost more money because you're going to have union workers in these factories that you don't have in, in the Fox cons of, of the world. Um, so what is the incentive to, to, for Apple to, to buy the semiconductors that TSMC makes in Kentucky versus the ones they make in, in Taiwan? I mean, I, I, you know, like I said, I think there's, there, if I read it correctly, there's a clause in there that says that they, the companies can't offer cheaper products elsewhere for like 10 years if they, go into this pro this mm. program to get these subsidies. Um, but I still feel like, you know, companies being what they are and billion dollar companies being billion dollar companies, they'll find a way to get around this. And um, I don't, I, I don't see, you know, the apples of the world buying more expensive product just because it was made in the United States. I, I see Apple doing that. I'll take that back. I do see app. I don't see anybody else doing that. Well, I was, I, I guess I was going to ask the question. Is this new chips act a direct response or, um, in partnership? I was reading through the article and it says the HBCU chips network, which is unaffiliated mm-hmm. with the commerce chips for America under the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Is they is is this article or are we making the assumption that this announcement from the federal government is automatically or had in its mind where it was going to disseminate and distribute some of this money? One of those big groups was the HBCU Chips Network, or is are we are we assuming that since Biden announced this, this group has the most opportunity or uh, ventures to gain or or gets them the ability to get in on the ground floor where otherwise we wouldn't even be offered an option, I guess is my question. Because it sounds like the way the article reads, it sounds like the government has partnered with these HBCU groups, but when actuality they, they, they haven't. And if they haven't, or if they have, what is the ironclad statement or argument or agreement that says these HBCU chips network is going to benefit from this um, Biden's chips and science act. What are we talking about getting money to HBCUs? There's no ironclad agreement because even the ones that we thought were ironclad are not, (laughs) are not lived up to. But I think what's happening here is that you actually have the administration saying, um, you know, people in the administration who, although, the two groups are disparate. They're not related with each other or saying, Hey, we need to go work there because we, here's two problems that we have. Uh, Stephanie, you're absolutely right. There are not enough one. There are not enough H1B visas to bring folks in who have these skills to work in the foundries that we're building here. We just don't have enough of those visas. So, hold so up, we have hold to- Rick, before you go further, is it a specific skill or is it the, um, economical benefit 
to bring in people with H-1B-1 visas. Let me let me say it a better no. way. So, are so they no. trying to bring in cheap labor or are they trying to bring in specialized skilled labor? They're trying to bring in specialized skilled labor. We literally do not have enough people to do these jobs. There, there are them. not there are not enough Americans that have the skill set to, to 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 fill up the foundries that we're building. Like, you know, there, there's an Intel facility being built literally 15 miles from my house. They one of their biggest concerns. We hear this on the news regularly. We just don't have enough people to you know put into these jobs. So they've got all kind of programs where they're literally trying to grab folks from other parts of the country to get them to come and move to Columbus, Ohio. Well, why would um, they do that? Why don't I'm sorry? Just train the people that's already there. Um, well, that's just it. We don't, the, you there's know, we don't have folks that are going into of, it. So in the state of Ohio, there's not enough people that can get ramped up in the one to five years. It would take the disfoundry to get off the ground. Oh, there, there, there are, but people don't look at jobs like that. You, you don't look at as a junior or senior in high school about, oh, you know what? Intel is building this foundry. Let me go into this job, you know, um, area for my four years of college so that when I graduate, I can go work specifically at Intel. There are some folks I'm, that I'm imagining that are that ambitious that will do that, but there just aren't enough of them. There are, we, we aren't pumping out enough people with the skill set to, to basically do, uh, you know, much of this high tech work that is often done at the Foxcons of the world and done and, you know, you know, done in, um, South Korea and, you know, in other places uh, like that. So what, you know, what generally happens is that when you know that you've got jobs that you need to fill, you've got to put programs in place to get people to fill the jobs. So the government is trying to get anybody uh, American, at least anybody inside of, you know, inside of these, uh, you know, lower 48. Uh, and I would have I don't know that they're doing anything in Alaska. I haven't heard about that, but I'll just say the lower 48. That's where we're generally building these foundries. They want anybody that's here to be eligible for those jobs. But they know that they can't just say, hey, we're going to have these jobs available in, in two or three years on your own. Go get trained for them. Why the government saying own? we need to put stuff in place that we know that we're going to have people to uh, go and do some of these jobs. So it's not just like the government is just looking at HB. They're looking at colleges all over the United States. But to solve another issue, is that what they're saying is that, well, wait a minute, when we look at, um, you know, because there, there is a provision, it's called Provision 104 of the Chips and Science Law. It mandates efforts to establish activities that engage economically in um, disadvantaged individuals. That is actually written into the law. So what they're saying is that, well, wait a minute. We know that we have to, by law, look so at they're trying to kill disadvantaged two birds with one stone. With one stone. And it's like, and here's what we also know, even though these HBCUs are radically underfunded, they are churning out 50 percent of the black engineers in the United States as far as that are coming out of college every year. So if we partner with them and they're already churning out, you know, folks at that clip at that rate, once again, 10 percent of graduates come out of HBCUs over 50 percent of graduates. With these high tech degrees come out of HBCUs. So that's, that's what I think the, the government is saying. The, if we com- That's the problem, too, because they're not doing it out of the goodness of their heart because it's the actual right thing to do because you've been under funding deliberately and maliciously on and intentions to right that wrong you're doing it mm-hmm. because it it's convenient to do to use as a a mechanism to right that wrong while you still reap all of the benefit of the talent 
that you want to to extract from those universities. So it's like, you know, I guess the ends justifies the means, I suppose, because the schools are going to get the money. And I mean, I'm sure somebody listening right now is like, damn it, the school's getting the money. Just, you know, be shut up about it. But it's still, you know, it, it doesn't leave space for the actual wrong to be corrected and and acknowledged and and for somebody to be held accountable for the initial wrong. I think we kind of gloss over that when we do it this way because because the country still gets the benefit. And, and not are, only that, Stephanie, uh ain't no guarantee they're going to get the money. <laughs> number right. 1, that and part. Number 2, and number 2, just cut the check, man. You talking about just right cut and the wrongs check. and you talking about putting programs together Part, partner ironclad partner with these HBCUs and said over the next five years we're going to give 50 billion dollars whatever the number is we're going not just we're going to create programs or not just on your own once you graduate from college and get the degree then you can apply in the hopes of getting this job at this new foundry that makes these new ripple no say look from ninth grade you can apply for this program. And if you get in this program, we're going to build you up to where once you get to a competency level, whether that's high school diploma, whether that's college diploma, whether that's master's degree, whatever it is. Once you go through this project product uh, 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 program, then you're automatically slated for X, Y, Z, ABC, whatever the case may be. It sounds like they just want to. It sounds like to me they just want to announce something. And then wherever direction goes, wherever direction goes, but you can't take away the fact that it announced it, Jack. <laughs> well, and then it's uh, like it, it to your point, that. we we had the HBCU has their chips network, so you know you can you can presume some of that money would have filtered down to that network anyway, and you would still reap the benefit. But you're just trying to get away with not actually having to admit the wrongdoing. Of mm-hmm. underfunding the schools in the first place, and you're trying to slide the money in on the low low, so and and not take again, not take accountability for what you did all these years for all these years, and, and it's just it's, it's stopping just, them from you getting know, money. So yeah, I will I will sucks. say a couple things. I I don't know I don't know that it's that because things that I will uh, I will never do. I will never assume that the government or companies will do what is best for the people no. before they do what's best for them. I also believe that a broke clock is right twice a day. So if this money comes to these schools, so things that we know, the report is saying that we have, uh, you know, that we have basically, uh, um, you know, underfunded HBCUs diabolically. So I'm adding in diabolically. That's my own adjective. But they are saying that they have done so, uh, you know, intentionally to uh, make sure that these schools can't compete on the same playing field as other state universities. It's like folks want to, you know, you know, a, a lot of people will look at, you know, HBCUs like they shouldn't be getting it's like HBCUs. If they're most of them are state schools, they they are entitled to the same money, to the same dollars as other state schools. But there have been so many rules and regulations they've put on, uh, you know, on HBCUs, even when it comes to like the amount of land they can buy in the towns that they're in, um, where they're constricted by not being able to expand where other state schools that are not HBCUs and that literally in the same cities don't have that. There's so many right. things that have, that have happened. We're not 
you know, litigating all that. We know that, you know, that they have been treated. Uh, they have lost, you know, um, you know, multiple lawsuits. The federal government has state governments have about how they're not doing right by their HBCUs, which is one of the reasons why provision 104 is actually built into this. Well, so with that being said, it's like, it doesn't matter to me at this point that if this money comes because the law said you had to, um, it doesn't matter to me. It's like, well, the only reason you're doing this is because you couldn't hire enough people coming from outside of the country to come in and do these jobs. So you've got to give it to, you know, you, you you've got to train people inside of the country uh, to do it. That doesn't matter to me so long as the folks who look like us are getting an opportunity to go into these fields because the programs are not actively working against us. In this case, they may actually work for us. Um, that may be pie in the sky from my standpoint. But like I said, I, you know, I, I, I am not disillusioned. I don't think that the government is doing this because, oh, you know what? We really need to do something that's going to help these HBCUs out. Like, no, the government is like, we, we, we realize the spot we're in and how bad it was, you know, for us during the pandemic. And we cannot be there because this is messing with our national security. It's not just about being able to help open AI uh, build really cool chatbots. It is not just about uh, having really cool phones. You can walk around in your pocket, uh, you know, walk around with in your pocket. This goes to national security. You know, the military, they need AI. They, 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 they need these chips to basically build guidance control systems for all the things that we have that shoot things down, um, you know, pretty much everywhere you know around this planet so there's a lot that we're saying that we're not going to be in a situation where we're just not going to uh, be able to compete with the rest of the world and the thing about 10 years this is a long play it takes five years to build these foundries so if you're telling Intel if you're telling Marvell technology if you're telling TSMC you can't um, for 10 years, sell your stuff overseas more, uh, you know, or, or basically, you know, sell stuff overseas undercut. more expensively than you can sell it right. here. You can't mm-hmm. undercut. It's like, okay, well, it's going to take us five years to get the thing built before we can even, you know, have the capacity anyway. And we got another five years to get, get quarter trillion dollars. Right. Okay. We're cool with it. Why? Right. Because ultimately that's going to bolster their bottom line. And, you know, 10 years is a long time. That is, you know, that, that, that is a presidential cycle and two, two presidential cycles and a half, uh, you know, with, with 10 years. So from, from where I'm sitting is like, I, 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 like I said, Steph, I don't believe that we're doing this because, well, we're doing this because this is just what's right. No, absolutely. It doesn't not. matter. We're doing it because we, and, we, we and caught like, ourselves on our pants like down said, during the I'm pandemic not, and we don't want to be there anymore. And I'm not mad that the HBCUs are getting, like, like, like I said, I prefaced all of it by saying, I'm not mad. We're getting the money, but, you know, to Saray's point, she said the right solutions for the wrong reasons. And and it it's it, it again, by not <clears throat> actually admitting the wrongdoing and holding yourself accountable to that wrongdoing, the behavior doesn't necessarily change. This is just, you know, some sort of stopgap solution that we need and you need black folks to help you clean up, you know, because you weren't ready and got caught with your pants down when we had this pandemic. And so, you know. Five years from now, 10 years from now, however, when the money runs out or when you just decide that you no longer want to cut that check, you're not cutting the check and, and nobody, nobody's, you know, being held accountable for that. So it just, it just, you don't, stuff doesn't get mm-hmm. fixed if you don't acknowledge that it was broken in the first place. 
So here's just one quote that I actually pulled out. Federal government data has found that HBCUs have been underfunded for decades, in some cases intentionally so to the point of not being able to compete. This is coming from federal from federal uh, reports and, you know, and findings that they have had. So I believe that at least this particular administration is admitting that, yes, we have not held up our end of the bargain. But once again. I don't um, believe it. It says yeah. it says a report found. It didn't right. say the United States say, government like admit we, to it. Exactly. You know what? Because we, when they we're admit sorry to it, for doing we, we, this. No, that's never going to happen. That is know, never I going know. to happen. Lies the problem. Because as soon as that happens, you, you, the, you know, the, the, the big R word exactly. is coming after that. When you when, when you admit that you've actually done something wrong, then the R word comes after that. And that 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 is yeah. not happening. So, yeah. like I said, a broke clock is wrong. Uh, you know, for twenty two hours, but for that for that one hour a day that it is right, for that one moment a day that it is right, I will take the win here. If some of this five billion dollars that just got allocated last week goes to HBCUs, yeah. something the HBCUs are already saying, hey. We need to figure out what we got to do to get some of this money. Um, if the government is saying it's like, yeah, it looks like you've got to figure it out. Maybe we can work something out. I am. I am eager to see how those things turn out. I, I you know, I, I don't want to put a, a, a wet towel over that before we even know <laughs> what's going to happen. I believe it when the check clear. Put it like that. Right. Yeah. Cut the check. So, y'all, um, we are going to get ready to wrap our show up. But before we do, as we said uh, for the last several weeks now, we're going to do a uh, we're, we're going to do a spotlight every week in uh, in February just because it is Black History Month. So this one um, we're going to be talking about longtime listeners uh, of the tech. John may have heard us talk about Jerry Lawson, also known as the father of gaming, because he was one of the first. It was one of the first spotlights that we did way back in November of 2021. We want to give Jerry his flowers again and talk just a bit about the ridiculous contributions he made to the gaming industry. So, as I said, we, we did talk about him before and we can, you know, we'll, we'll link in our show notes to where you can go look at that full bio of where he grew up and where he went to college and stuff like that. But what Mr. Lawson and his team at Fairchild Semiconductor uh, did, they revolutionized the video game industry and they have three key innovations. The first one was the pause button. So I just asked, I was like, can you, can you imagine playing a video game that you can't actually stop in the middle of the game? Go get yourself a drink, go get yourself situated, then come back and finish playing the game. That didn't exist before Jerry Lawson's team said, you know what? We might, we might want to allow people to pause these games. The second thing that he came up with was a joystick with eight directions of movement. So once again, we're going way back into the mid seventies, uh, you know, with this joysticks back then, they oftentimes were just dials. They were analog dials where you could turn a dial and move a slider one way or the other. He actually came up with a joystick that had eight different directions that you could push this thing when no other uh, joystick had more than four. And then the big thing that the, Mr. Lawson and his team came up with was the game cartridge. And that that literally fundamentally changed everything. Um, I was thinking back to, uh, you know, when I was really, really young, my uncle had a game. I, I don't believe it was the actual Pong game from Atari, but it was a Pong. It was a Pong clone. And I remember playing that when I was like five, six years old. And the game, you literally just hooked it up to the TV and turned the game on and you played Pong. That was, that was, that was all. I think his game had two, two pieces to it. It was Pong and there was like this tank game that was kind of Pong like to where you could just shoot and bounce stuff through and try to shoot another tank. But that's all that the whole game console did. It did just those two games. And when you got done playing that, you unhooked it from the TV and you put your rubber beers back on and you would go back to watching, you know, you know, watching whatever it is you watch. 
So what the uh, you know, what, uh, you know, Mr. Lawson and his team did, they came up with the game cartridge that we all that we all, you know, if you're a certain age, everybody knows the game cartridge. Uh, this is it I was made famous. The sound it makes when you blow in it, to get, blow, blow to get in it, to it tap it, rub, rub it to heat it up, tap it on your leg, all the stuff we used to have to do. But that came from a, uh, you know, from a computer system called the Fairchild Channel F. The Channel F stood for Channel Fun. And it was a game that came pre-installed with two games on the console like old school games but then you could buy uh i believe it had nine games it released uh when it first came out and uh those games were like twenty dollars a piece in addition to the console which it, it was expensive back in the day but it was only like 170 dollars at jc that's where you would pick this up now the fairchild f didn't really do all that well um you know so you know we it, it, it basically got uh molly by that thing called the atari 2600 as we know it today back then it was called the atari vcs that came out a year later the fairchild the fairchild f came out in 2000 or 2000 came out in 1976 then the uh the, the atari uh, vcs which is now the 2600 came out in 77 and it just took over uh it had better games better game developers that were you know creating games for it and it kind of just as i said molly whopped the uh the, the fairchild but that doesn't mean that the dude and the team that invented it was not named Jerry Lawson and, and yeah, worked right. at uh, Fairchild Semiconductor. So um, in 1980, uh, Mr. Lawson left Fairchild to found VideoSoft. It was a video game development company that made software for the Atari 2600 in the early 80s. And then it shut down in 85. And then after that, he basically became a consultant flying under the radar. He did a couple things where he was trying to build like a clock that would wake you up with your voice. Um, he was working um, with Stevie Wonder on that. So, he, so he, he stayed active until he retired around 2003 when he started suffering from uh, complications of diabetes and uh, he was honored uh, by the international game developers association for his contributions to the industry before passing away at the age of 70 on april 9th 2011 so once again we want to talk about uh or this spotlight should say we're talking about jerry lawson the father of modern gaming and you know today we don't really use cartridges and stuff like that anymore but you know i you know i I know I'm old enough to remember. I had an Atari 2600. I had a ColecoVision. I had an Intellivision. Um, when I say I, it was like multiple family members and we each had our own console that we would get, uh, you know, every other year or so. But and I that's still have how games a, work. a Game Boy somewhere around here with a little Tetris cartridge that goes in the back of it. So, like, you know, from I still have whenever- a fu- I still have a functioning um, Nintendo 64 and probably 40 games for it. Um, I definitely have a Game Boy, um, and I probably have 15 or 20 games for my Game Boy. Um, not, not the original Game Boy. It's like a Game Boy Advance or something like that. One of the, you know, more recent ones. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, that, that's all due to game cartridges. Shout out to Jerry Lawson. Yeah. So with that, y'all, we're going to go ahead and, uh, get ready to wrap up the show. Before we do, I want to like, to let you know that if you would like to support the Tech John and look cool while you're doing it, you can do so by heading over to thetechjohn.com forward slash shop where you'll find all kinds of swag. We've got hats and hoodies, t-shirts, mugs, mice pads, tumblers, and more all branded with our Tech John logo. Once again, head over to thetechjohn.com forward slash shop and pick up yourself some of the new hotness that we just added a bit earlier this year. So with that being said, Tech Life Steph, tell the folks how they can get at you. You can follow me all around the web at Tech Life Steph or check out my website at stephaniehumphrey.com. 
And you can find me all over the internet at Brother Tech. That's B-R-O-T-H-A-T-E-C-H. And I am at Rob Dunwood on all the things. And we are also at the Tech John on all the things. So come holler at us however you holler. Until we meet again in a week's time. Peace. Peace. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.